friend and welcome to the Ayurveda and Psychology podcast. I am Charlotte Skogsberg, your host for this podcast. I am enchanted to meet and to take you with me on this journey into the human psyche viewed from the holistic approach of yoga and Ayurveda and viewed from the modern man approach of clinical psychology and psychoanalysis. So have something nice to drink next to you, maybe a cup of tea, have a seat, or go out for a nice walk in nature maybe. Enjoy. In this episode that focuses on psychology, I will continue on this theme of are we living in a bubble? Is it actually possible to work on yourself, to work on your person and evolve in your identity when you're just living that normal life filled with Lots of hours of work, kids, home, friends, family, and all of that. So last week I was speaking from the Ayurvedic perspective, can you be healthy? And today it's really in health again, but from that emotional, mental perspective. And I want to start with a really bold statement, which is, indeed, it is a privilege to work on yourself. But no, it's not a financial or intellectual privilege. Instead, I'd like to kick off today's episode with a quote from the very interesting, wonderful, famous philosopher Krishnamurti, who said that it is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And I'd say that the reason people don't work on themselves is not because they don't have the time. It is because they have been trained to see whatever pain they suppress with addictions as something normal. So what it really takes to want to work on oneself is to be a rebel. More than once have I used the analogy of the child's play, the toy, where you need to figure out what shaped wooden plug fits into which hole of a base, right? So it tends to be those big kind of square things, a cube, and it has holes in it, and some are round like a circle and some are squared and then there's other ones as well, right? Actually, I think it's a French expression even to use that analogy. But it's just a very clear image of what we often try to do in order to fit into the norm. We try to push a round shape into a squared hole. And anything that is, in quote, out of norm meaning anything that is not what most people are or do, needs to be tamed into submission. And we accept it 
because it's the norm. And supposedly, if we're not in the norm, we are, well, deviant and different. I will never do what my parents did, is something we commonly hear. And we would also often hear things like, young people these days, right? Fill in the blank. In my days, and so on and so forth. And both of these expressions are very common, and there are proof that we are evolving, but also that we probably don't change that much after all, because the truth is that the people saying, oh, young people today, had that same thing said about themselves when they were young, from those who were older then. And the person saying, I will never do that thing that my parents did, actually tend to repeat that exact same behavior later on. If we take a look at past generations, we can see how certain things have become obsolete or that the perspective basically just have changed. We could call it a kind of paradigm shift that happens between generations. And at the same time, there is that transgenerational aspect of many beliefs and many behaviors that goes from one mother to the next and so on and so forth. And father. Certain things progressively fade out and become obsolete and other gradually make their entrance. But we hardly notice them because it does so through a process that we would call normalization. And the process of normalization is well explained with the theory of the boiling frog. And in case you haven't heard that theory, here it goes. If you would take a frog and you drop it into boiling water, the frog will jump out. But if you put a frog into a pot with water that is cold and you slowly increase the temperature until it comes to the boiling point, the frog will just sit there until it boils to death because the frog does not recognize its environment as becoming toxic for it. One idea that was very much normalized until the 90s, I want to say, or early 2000s even, was that therapy is only for sick people. Basically, if you need a shrink, as they would call it, it's because there's something wrong with you. Or, if there's something going on, keep it in the family. We can deal with it in the family. Even, just don't wash your dirty laundry in public. And since the days of Freud, for sure, often, therapy has been reserved to, well, those who could afford it. And in the 90s, I guess it started to become fashionable amongst the Hollywood stars. And then soon it was normalized to the creme de la creme of society 
So yes, naturally, we would think of the idea to pay for someone in order to scratch our navel, basically, for an hour every week. To the broader public, it would seem as if it was a luxury, one that we might not have the time or the money to waste on. And I fully agree on the fact that you need to have the money to spend on it. But you also need the money to spend on, well, alcohol every weekend. Yet no one seems to think of that as being a luxury. In fact, I know and met in my life many who would gladly reduce their budget of both food, clothes and accommodation in order to be able to go out, as they would call it, a.k.a. to drink alcohol. And even without going onto that quite easy target of alcohol, we can look at the budget we all keep for anything like sweets or streaming services, anything really that we spend money on because, and once again in quotes, (laughs) we're worth it. And this is the thing. All of those things are in our lives and we spend money on them because we see it as a way to enrich our lives. We're worth that pleasure. So how come we can't see that working on ourselves could be also because I'm worth it? At the worthiness that L'Oreal even made one of probably the most successful ad campaigns for, right? So it all boils down to what has been normalized and what has not. I mean, just take the example of alcohol once again. It is so socially accepted, it's so normalized to drink on a daily basis or on a weekly basis, go out and really get drunk, right? That no one lifts a eyelash, (laughs) a finger or whatever you want to say around it. Yet other substances that also puts you in an altered state of consciousness and might have effects on your body are very quickly seen as, you know, illegal. Even those that might not have at all detrimental effects on your physical body the way alcohol does. And if you're still not sure of this idea of what's normalized, just think of this. Before the First World War, right? So let's say before, before the 20th century, no one would consider eating things that had been on the shelves for a year, several years, because clearly it was not something that was eatable, right, in that sense. I'm not speaking about um, your staples of grains, for instance. But even an apple that would last on a shelf for longer than a few days would probably seem unnormal, abnormal. People would not work after the sun had gone down because actually you couldn't see anything. 
And no one would find it specifically attractive to look like you hadn't eaten in a week. In our paradigm of belief that we have now, it has been completely normalized to eat things that are so processed that it has no nutritional, nutritional value whatsoever and could be for years in a small plastic box. And because it was filled with sugar and coloring, we would still eat it. No one finds that strange. And to stay awake after there's no more light is perfectly normalized as well. I would go as far as saying to work and be available for work 24-7 has been normalized. Starve yourself and pretend that you don't feel hunger even in order to look thin, to look really thin, to look skinny, has also been perfectly normalized. But the, the boiling frog idea hit me really when I had a conversation years ago, actually, with a friend about Facebook. If we imagine what Facebook is today, and then we think back on what it was when it started, let's say, somewhere around 2005, I think, is probably when, between 2005 and seven, right, is when many people um, most people, I guess, signed up. So what it was then and what it is now is really very different. And if you would take what Facebook is today, what it offers today, what it can do today, what you can do with it today, and what it can do with you, I should more say, and then you would have put all of that in writing, right, in 2005, and you would have presented it to people and said, sign up. No one would have signed up for Facebook in 2005. But we instead became just gradually habituated to it and what it did and not really seeing straight away maybe what those small things would do to us, how it would impact us until, of course, we started to really see in what way it impacted us. So all of this was meant to just make you see how taking the step towards commitment of therapy can, yes, be seen as a luxury or a privilege, but only because we have agreed to that. In what we have signed up on as being normal way of living. This is, of course, why, and it has been for some time, right? But Jung would actually describe the work itself as the individuation process. Joseph Campbell would refer to it as the hero's journey. And that actually it only really starts once we've been disappointed with the illusion. 
because w the way they would look at it, and specifically I remember reading that Jung would say that people would only come to therapy from the age of, let's say, 35. Because what it means is we accept what has been given to us and we do what we've been told to do with this kind of promise that that would bring us liberation, actually, that we would feel free, that we would feel whatever it is that we're yearning for, which is really freedom, but often disguised in different ways. Freedom to be who we are. And then we come to a point which often is around that age, maybe 30 or 35, and maybe it's different these days because that was you know, quite some time ago. But we come to a point where we realize that we've done all those things and yet we're not happy, right? Because that is what we're feeling. We're not happy. And then we choose one way or another. And depending on in what kind of structure I am, what seems to be normal where I am, I can choose to take the path of working on myself. Or I can choose the path of how can I develop even more addictions right now to keep myself away from the pain that I might be feeling. And if I'm then working, right, and I am an adult and I have certain liberties in life and a certain, let's say, financial freedom, it's very easy to take on all those addictions that just keeps me away from feeling what I'm really feeling, which is why we have this pandemic of disconnection to our emotional world, universe. Basically just feeling unfulfilled, not really knowing that there's an option. Okay, so give us an answer then, Charlotte. What do we do? Because that's all fine and dandy, but is it just to state that anyone who doesn't seem to be in a, in a norm where they can take action, they're just doomed then to not take action? And of course, if you are listening to this, then maybe... You are already on the path, right? But it could also be for anyone in your surrounding. So what do you feel? What do you do, I want to say, when it feels as if you don't have the privilege to make the commitment to go into therapy, to look into yourself, to go for the retreat, right? If no one around you sees that as normal, but instead maybe even would ridicule it or that it seems too expensive, for instance, or maybe just time-wise. Now, the advantage of the age of uh, information, or shall we call it the age of communication, is that we can find so much information, so much what we struggled with 20 years ago or 30 years ago, in a click. And of course, that's also the disadvantage because we easily get overwhelmed with all of that and then we just drop it all so i'm not going to suggest to you that you go and google it right because you can of course and i'm sure that you've already done that you don't need me to tell you but you don't even need to go that far and you don't need to spend really any money or potentially just a tiny tiny bit by buying a notebook the one thing that i would say that you can do today that does not cost or demand time really that much is to just write down what's on your mind. No one needs to know about this. 
And the benefits of a daily journaling practice is that you begin to know some of those, whatever it is, 60,000 thought processes that run through your head in a day. You will notice that there is a lot of negative self-talk. And you might notice that there are certain themes, right? Certain things that just keeps coming back, rumination. All of that is really helpful to you. Because, of course, it does something to you, whether you're aware of it or not. It creates the perception that you have of yourself. It creates the perception that you have of anyone around you and the whole world. And it creates the perception that you have of your day. What we don't know that we do will always control us. Of course. So the thoughts that we are not aware of are far more powerful in driving us than the ones that we are aware of. This is why writing down whatever comes through your head as a practice every day progressively begins to clarify this and takes that power back. We often believe that just pushing away a thought, then it will go away, but it's not the case. Because that thought is not hazardly there. It's there for a reason. And especially the recurrent ones. Because they come from a belief that you have, from a perception that you have, a fear that you have. So what we want to do is we want to go to the bottom with it. Because that's how we neutralize it. So that's why it doesn't work to say, don't be silly. You're being dramatic and all of those things. Instead, ask yourself, Where does that thought come from? What am I making this mean? In a situation where you notice a thought coming up that is a negative one and specifically that identifies you with something, ask yourself, why am I making this thought in this moment? What am I making this moment mean? You see, nothing is ever random or insignificant. Everything has a cause. Everything has a reason to be. Goes for your thoughts. Begin with tracing your thoughts. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this podcast and this episode. I am very grateful. If you enjoyed this and you think that other people could enjoy this, please help me to spread the word. Share this episode on any channel that you have of social media or messaging. And even more so, I would really appreciate if you know one other person who might benefit from my words today specifically. Take that one minute it takes to simply share this episode with one person. Remember, that there's a human being on the other side of your phone, of your earpods, of this microphone. And I would love to hear your thoughts on what I've been talking about. So please leave a comment. Send me a message directly if you wish. This is Charlotte. This is me. See you next time. Namaste. Namaste.